It's great to be here. I definitely, uh, my time at Valley Center, it was just, uh, I loved it. I have so many just fun, amazing memories, and I know just, I learned so much in my time here. So God taught me so much. I think about lessons I learned, you know, people that I knew and uh, during these years, and just uh, am, am so thankful for them, and uh, know how much God used, especially the people here in my life, uh, just to prepare me and to, to to make me the person that I am. So I'm very thankful for uh, for you guys and for this church, and it's really exciting to be back here. So let's pray, and then I uh, will begin. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you that you never leave us, you never forsake us. God, I pray that you just open our eyes, just help us to understand your word tonight, or this morning, even in a, in a new way, and to, to realize even more how much you love us and how good you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So all of us, whether we're conscious of it or not, whether we think about it or not, all of us have this vision of the good life, like this, this picture of what we think it means to, to, to arrive, to flourish, to, to, to succeed. And, and what we find is that that vision of the good life, whatever it is for you, it actually propels and it guides every single little decision that you make throughout the day. Our, our, our vision of the good life helps us determine at the end of a day, was this a good day or was this a bad day? Or at the end of a year, was this a successful year or was this not a successful year? Uh, th- this vision of the good life, actually, we're going to find out this morning, impacts the way that we view God. And so that's why I want this morning to take a few minutes and really consider what is our vision of the good life? What do we believe success looks like. Uh, In order to help us, I'll just ask a number of questions that you could be thinking about. Uh, What what do you find yourself daydreaming about? Uh, What do you look forward to? What are your if-onlys, right? If only this, then everything would be so much better, right? If only I had a better job. If only my kids would love Jesus. If only my kids would listen to me. If only I could afford a better place to live. If only I was married. If only uh, I had a happy marriage. If only whatever fill in the blank. What, what is it that comes to mind when you are thinking, if only? What is there that, that if you lost it, you couldn't even imagine life without? If, if, if you didn't have this in your life, you couldn't imagine it being worth even going forward. Is it family or a spouse or your job or your freedom. Questions like this help us to get a better understanding of what it is that we see as the good life. And make no mistake about it, every one of us in this room has a vision of the good life, and that vision is what's driving all of the decisions we make throughout the day. And because of that, it's really, really important that we make sure that we have the right vision of the good life, that we have the right understanding of the good life. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at Psalm 73. And the beauty of this psalm is it's a wisdom psalm. And one of the purposes of this psalm is to actually answer the question for us, what is the good life? So if you want to turn to Psalm 73, we find out verse 1, the psalmist begins, and he shares something that's been ingrained in his head since he was a little kid. He says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure 
in heart. From the time he was a kid, he's just been told over and over again, God is good, God is good, God is good to his people. He probably went to one of those synagogues where they start out, God is good, and everyone says all the time, right? That's just the way that it was. That's, that's what he was ingrained in. But he can't even get through the first verse without all of a sudden running into a problem. And here's his problem. If God is really good to his people, then why aren't I living the good life? That's what he can't understand. If God is good to his people, then why aren't I living the good life? How many of you have ever felt that way? How many of you have ever asked that question? How many of you have ever said, if God is really good to his people, then why is my life so hard? If God is really good to his people, why did he let my parents get a divorce? Why is he allowing my kids to rebel? If God is good to his people, why can't I figure out how to pay all my bills? If God is good to his people, why are my parents sick? Why do I feel so alone? Why am I always anxious? Why do I have this suffocating depression. If God is good, why is my life so hard? You ever ask yourself that? That's what the psalmist is doing. That's what he can't understand. And then it gets even worse because he looks around and he realizes all of the people living the good life, the wicked, that the wicked are, are living the life he wants. They're the ones that go around and everything just seems to go perfect for them. Look at verses 2 through 4. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. He goes on for another nine verses. And then in verse 12, he says, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. You want to know how you're defining the good life? Here's an easy way to figure it out. Just look at what it is that you're envying. What do you envy? Whatever it is that you envy, that will help you see what it is that you believe the good life is. The psalmist, it's clear to us, he thinks the good life is a life of comfort, riches, and ease. That's what he believes the good life is. You can tell because that's what he's envying. And what the psalmist can't... Here's the thing. You don't, I don't want you to read those verses and think like, this psalmist is consumed with wealth and with comfort, and he just... That's not the case. Here's the issue. This psalmist desperately wants to believe that God is good. That's what he wants to believe. But because God is not giving him the good life, he cannot bring himself to believe that God is good. He can't. As hard as he tries. What he, he just... He just looks around and he says, if God was good to his people, then why do the wicked get the good life and I don't? You can see that, right? Verse 13, he says, all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked 
every morning. I want to show you his logic. Here's his logic. God is good to the pure in heart. So I'm going to keep my heart pure. If I keep my heart pure, God will be good to me. If God is good to me, he's going to give me the good life. The good life is a life of comfort and ease and wealth. But I don't have that life. In fact, the wicked who could care less about God have that life. Which leaves him to conclude that God must not be good to his people. He must not be good to the pure in heart. All in vain I have kept my heart pure. I think it's important to consider for a moment where the psalmist's logic goes wrong. What's the flaw in his logical argument? And I think what you'll notice is the flaw in his argument is his faulty definition of the good life. And I want you to notice the serious consequences of that. Because of his faulty definition of the good life, he finds himself doubting the very goodness of God. Because here's the deal. It is impossible for you to believe that God is good to you if you do not believe you are living the good life. I want you to think about that. Some of you wonder why you find it so hard to believe in the goodness of God. Well, I'll tell you, it is impossible for you to truly believe that God is good to you if you do not believe that he's given you the good life. I mean, that makes sense, right? Like, how... how we believe, we know God is in control of everything, so if we're not living the good life, it's because God is withholding it from us. He's keeping it from us. And if God is keeping something really good from us, if He's holding the good life away from us, then how on earth could we believe that He's actually good for us? The truth is, that's the lie that broke this world in the first place. Right, the lie that God is holding out on us. That's what Eve believed in the garden, Satan's first words. Did God really say not to eat of any of the trees? What's he insinuating? God is holding out on you. I wonder how many of us have given in to that temptation. How many times we've fallen prey to that same lie. How many times... We felt like God was holding out on us. How many times have we questioned his goodness because we did not think that we were living the good life? That's exactly where the psalmist finds himself in the first half of Psalm 73. And then all of a sudden in verse 17, something happens and everything shifts. And what's really interesting is that his circumstances don't change at all. He's still suffering. The wicked are still flourishing. So what changes? Well, look at verse 17. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Standing in the temple, all of a sudden the psalmist realized that he'd gotten this whole thing wrong. In that moment, he realized the wicked did not have the good life. They may be rich. They may be comfortable. Everything may be easy for them, but they were on a slippery slope. And in a single moment, he realized they were going to lose everything that they'd ever lived for. Look at verse 18 and 19. Truly, you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. 
how they are destroyed in a moment, swept utterly away by tears. You know what happened in the sanctuary? All of a sudden, and it must have come like a kick in the gut, the psalmist realized that he had been envying people on their way to hell. The people that he had been begging God to switch him places with were a people that were on their way to hell. Stunned, he realizes what a fool he had been. Look at verse 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and I was ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. The psalmist realizes that that his envy was born out of ignorance and that it had actually led him to be a brute beast towards God. Unfortunately, I've seen envy do the same thing sort of thing in my own heart. I, I remember a couple years ago, um, maybe like five years ago, a woman was traveling through to Arizona, and she stopped by our Bible study at my house on Friday nights, and this woman was a part of a church plant, and so we were talking, and I found out she was a part of a brand new church plant, and church planting gets me really excited. I love talking to people about it and hearing how it is. It's you know, something that we did 10 years ago, and so I was excited. I had got all this, you know, just wanted to hear about it, wanted to see what they're doing, wanted to encourage this lady, and just thought, oh, this is great. So how long have you been going? She's like, we've been going one year. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. How many people do you got? Uh, I'm just trying to get a picture of, like, what's it like, what kind of struggles, that, you know, maybe they're going through. And she's like, ah, oh, maybe like 200. And I was like, oh, I just that kind of took a breath. I was kind of, for a moment, I stood back because I really wasn't expecting the 200. And, uh, and so then, but then I all of a sudden I had an idea that would make sense. And I was like, oh, so maybe you took a, you, you must have taken like a really big group from, from the mother church or something. That's amazing. And she just looked at me and she said, nah, nah, we started with just a handful of people. But God's just been blessing us. It's been crazy. The doors are just, people are breaking the doors down. They just, just can't get enough of it. And uh, the thing is. We all know that's really good. Like, that's amazing. Like, praise God. Like, the, it's so much better that they started with a little group and were growing from people from the community than they started with 150 people and they just growing a little. That's way better news. For the kingdom of God, that's better. That's really good. But if I'm honest with you, when she said that, something inside me felt a little bit sad. I felt like all of a sudden all my energy for the conversation was gone. And I just found myself thinking inside, I just, I think I would have enjoyed this conversation more if her church looked a little bit more like mine. And if her experience was a little bit more like the one we had. And I mean, all, all I have to do is say it out loud and you know it's, it's ignorant, it's, it's brutish, it's, it's beastly, it's, it's horrible. That's, that's, it's horrible to think that way. I, saying it out loud makes me really sad that I ever, that, that, it's, that it's true. That it happened. But you can see what happened to me, right? You can see my vision of the good life. I'd begun to believe that the good life was a fast-growing church. And what really, really hurt me and what was causing me to struggle was this idea that as hard as we were working, for some reason... God wasn't giving us the good life. And here this lady that had been around for one year had it. 
and weed in. That's what the psalmist is going through in this text. His misunderstanding of the good life has led him to act in a way that's brutish and ignorant towards God. And when the psalmist comes to grips with that, all of a sudden he realizes he is no better than the wicked. Looking down, the psalmist sees himself, and he sees that he's standing on the very same slippery slope that they were, and he knows that he deserves to be swept away utterly by terrors just like them. But somehow that's not what happened to him. Instead, in verse 23, he says, Nevertheless, nevertheless, even though I stood on the same slippery slope as the wicked, even though my heart was embittered, even though I was brutish and ignorant, even though I didn't deserve it, nevertheless, God was continually with me. He stood beside me holding my hand. He guided me with his word, and afterwards he will welcome me to glory. Don't you see what happened? Verse 1, his feet are about to slip. But before he falls and tumbles all the way into the judgment that he deserved, God was by his side holding him up, grasping his hand. All of a sudden, the psalmist realizes that that he is a God that's never going to leave him, a God that is committed to guiding him, a God who one day will welcome him into glory. At this point, the psalmist is so overwhelmed that he just breaks into worship. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there's nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and God is my portion forever. And then in verse 28... He brings everything together in his conclusion. And he says, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I like the NASB. It says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Do you see what's happened? The psalmist's whole perspective has changed. And suddenly, he has a completely different definition of the good life. At the beginning of this psalm, there were a lot of things on earth that he seemed to desire beside God, right? Twelve verses worth of things on earth that he desired besides God. At the beginning of this psalm, he seems very concerned about his flesh and about the suffering that he's going through. At the beginning of the psalm, if you ask him, he would say, the wicked are the ones living the good life, but all that's changed now. Now, he sees the truth. He sees the wicked are sliding down towards an eternity of suffering. And he knows the only thing that kept him safe was that his God was right beside him, holding his hand, guiding him with his word. And finally, he gets it. Finally, he gets it. He sits there and he says, but as for me, I finally understand the nearness of God. That's the good life. Of course, that raises a question. I mean, how is that possible? But how? What, what, what did he say in verse 1? Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But what did the psalmist just admit? His heart was embittered. It was brutish and ignorant. So how can God 
give the good life to someone like him? How can God be good to someone whose heart is hard, embittered, brutish, and ignorant? I think I think that's a question probably a lot of us have asked, isn't it? You ever wondered that? You ever done something so brutish, so ignorant? Something you probably thought you would never do? And you just find yourself wondering how on earth could God possibly still love me after that? You ever done something that that you're so disgusted by that you just don't even you just wish you weren't even by your you you wish you weren't in your own body. You wish you weren't even you wish you could get away from you. And you find yourself wondering how on earth could a holy God ever truly be with me after that. That's what the psalmist wonders. That's what this psalm, that's the question that this psalm leaves us asking. How is it possible for a holy God to offer sinners like you and me the good life? For centuries after Psalm 73 was written, God's people waited. They waited for this answer to come. What, what is the answer? What, how is it possible? They see this tension in Psalm 73. It seems like God is good even though this man is brutish and ignorant. How? And then one day, one day the sanctuary of God took on flesh and it came and it dwelt among men. And unlike any other human being who's ever lived, Jesus was perfectly pure in heart. And you know what that means? That means that Jesus deserved the good life. God is good to the pure in heart. And the Bible tells us Jesus actually enjoyed the good life. He enjoyed the good life for all eternity. John 1.18 tells us that for all eternity, where was Jesus? Sitting at his Father's side. He knew the nearness of God. Jesus understood the good life. He knew it better than anyone. He was familiar with the nearness of God. But Jesus left the Father's side. And he came to earth and he dwelt among the wicked. And as he looked around, he saw that the wicked got away with everything. And his life, he was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. But he never envied the wicked, and he never complained to his God. And he never distrusted his goodness. Nevertheless, even though he was perfectly pure in heart, Jesus still found himself on that same slippery slope that the psalmist was on. Within five days, Jesus remembered going from healing people in the temple and being declared the Messiah to hanging on a cross outside the city gates, being mocked and laughed at by everyone who passed by. 
He knew what it felt like to be on a slippery slope. And there, as he hung upon the cross, he found himself slipping further and further. He slid down towards the dreadful wrath of God. And in the hour of his greatest trial, when he needed him the most, the God who had always been at his father's side let go of his hand. He let go of his hand and Jesus fell headlong into judgment. On the cross, he was swept away utterly by tears. In that moment, he stopped living the good life as the nearness of God forsook him. He cried out to his own father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Finally, the tension of Psalm 73 is relieved as the innocent God, the innocent Son of God, gave up the good life so that He could offer it to brute beasts like us. There on the cross, the Father let go of His Son's hand so that He could reach down and take ours when we began to slip into judgment. God turned his back on his only son so that he could be continually with us. Jesus left the Father's side so that he could bring us back to it. So Valley Center, know for certain, God is good to his people. God is good to his people. And the good life is that we would be near him. To know that God is continually with us. To know that he holds us up by the hand. To know that he will guide us with his word. To know that afterwards, when it's all said and done, he will welcome us into his glory. That is the good life. That's the good life. What I love about that is it means so many times when, when we think of the good life, we think of all the obstacles and all the hurdles. And the good life, it's, it's, always, it's always just around the next bend, right? In high school, you can't wait to get to college. In college, you can't wait to get a job. Once you get a job, you need to get a girlfriend or get married. Once you get married, you need to get a family. Once you get a family, you need to, the good life's always around the next bend. But what I'm telling you is that this morning, you can have the good life. First time I preached this psalm, it was about eight years ago. And my wife and I were unable to have children. And, uh, and uh, this homeless woman in our church, she, she asked us if one, one Friday night if we would adopt her baby. She told us she'd been raped by her ex-boyfriend and, uh, and she didn't want the baby and she asked us if we'd adopt the little girl and we said yes. We took her to all her appointments and uh, we looked at all the ultrasounds and we just kind of were with her for the next few months. After three months, she had the baby, we went to the hospital, we picked her up. Her name is little Cynthia and we brought her home and Cynthia was, she had drugs in her system, so she had to go through some withdrawal. And so it was, it was a long three weeks of kind of holding her and just being with her. I, I had the night duty, so I would hold her most of the night and just feed her and try to comfort her. And we, we became pretty attached, you know, after, after about three weeks. And, uh, and then one night, just a normal night, the phone rings and I answer it and it's the social worker, and she says, it turns out that, uh, I guess, the, 
the mom didn't really get raped by the dad. And, uh, and she says the dad actually has a new girlfriend, and the new girlfriend wants uh, to raise the baby. So she said, tomorrow morning at 10 a.m., why don't you guys uh, pack the baby up and whatever stuff you've gotten for her, and why don't you bring her to this address and, and give her back to her dad. I remember we'd already had a, a baby shower, and we got the room already, and, uh, and it, was, it was crazy. I remember that night. I remember it was a long night. I remember I held her, I think, almost the whole night. I'm a little sentimental, so in the morning I gave her her last bottle and just tried to soak up every minute, and then I, I washed it out. I, I still got it on my bookshelf at home. Um, we packed up the van loaded her in and we drove her to her dad's took a few pictures and I held her while the dad unloaded the van and brought everything into his house and then I handed little baby Cynthia to her dad and my wife and I walked back to the car strangely silent just felt like the silence was everywhere after three weeks of just the baby crying and just sitting in the van. It felt so empty. It's crazy. The baby's so small, but it felt so empty when she was gone. And, um, we sat there. We couldn't couldn't move ourselves to to drive away and we cried for a while. And I remember some reason this psalm. I just couldn't get it out of my head. And so I remember looking at Abby and just saying beautiful beautiful the nearness of God that's the good life I remember I looked in her eyes and I just said listen to me listen you you and me you and me right here in this van right now we already have a good Remember, God taught me that that morning. The good life's not having a baby. The good life's not having a family. The good life's knowing that when everything has been stripped away, that your God is still right beside you. And when you feel yourself falling into despair that he's holding your hand and then when you're confused and you don't understand what he's doing, he's there to guide you with his word. And after all is said and done and all the tears have been shed and all the hearts have been broken and all the pain has been suffered, that he will welcome you into glory with him forever. That's the good life. Now, he said that the good life's not a bigger house or a better job or a, a, a more obedient family or a spouse or a career or whatever else you think it might be, whatever else this world tries to sell you on. That's not the good life. The good life is to be near God. One of the ways that helps me think about it is to remember this. Jesus did not leave heaven, his Father's side, take on flesh, come to this earth, shed his blood on the cross to give me a baby. 
He didn't do it so that my life could be comfortable. He didn't do it so that I could have a good job. He didn't do it so that my kids could listen to me when I talk to them or so that my parents could stay together. He didn't give his life on the cross to get you a bigger house or a better family or a more comfortable, easy future. It's not why he did it. The Son of God left the good life so that he could bring us back to God. That is the good life. It will always be the good life. Even when all the suffering of this earth is over and we are welcomed into God's glory and we get to experience that life of comfort and ease and wealth that we've always longed for, even then we will know that the best thing about heaven is to be with our God. Whom have I in heaven but you? On earth there's nothing I desire beside you. Our heart, our flesh, our families, everything's going to fail us. We're going to say goodbye to it in the end. But our God, He's our portion. He's our enough, both now and forevermore. As for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge. I will tell of all of His work. If we could just, I just, I just really, really feel like if we could get this right, it, it changes everything. So much pain, so much distrust, so much heartache, so, so, so much, so, so, ter- so many terrible consequences come when we misdefine the good life. You know one of the worst consequences that come when you misdefine the good life? You might get it. Isn't that what happens in this psalm? Don't you think the wicked misdefined the good life? And don't you think they all thought they had it? Until the day when they were swept away utterly by terrors. You misdefine the good life and you get it? and you're swept utterly away by tears. You misdefine the good life, and you don't, and you find yourself questioning the goodness of God and living in doubt. But if you will rightly understand the good life, but as for me, the nearness of God is the good life. If you'll rightly get it, then you can have it this morning, and it doesn't matter what the future holds for you. Your God will be continually with you. He will hold your hand when your feet begin to slip. He will guide you with his word when you don't have any idea what he's doing or why this is happening to you. And when it's all said and done, after all the tears and the heartache and the pain and the suffering, he will welcome you into glory with him. Amen? Dear Jesus, thank you so much for loving us and leaving your Father's side 
so that you could bring us to God. Thank you that though we're brute beasts who have been ignorant and envied the wicked and misdefined the good life and even questioned your goodness, that that did not stop you from loving us and sending your son and bearing our guilt and shame on the cross, being swept utterly away by terrors so that you could hold us up when our feet slipped. God, help us to know you are good. The God who gave his only son is good. You can be trusted, trusted regardless of the circumstances of our life. God, remind us to never leave us or forsake us and that your nearness is the good life we've always longed for. In Jesus' name, amen.